Now, then, cervical cancer is uh, causing the cancer causing most deaths uh, amongst w- many women in de- many developing countries. It's the second most common cancer among South African women. And according to the Cancer Association of South Africa, one in every 42 women in the country will be diagnosed with cervical cancer. Now, early detection means that treatment can be started uh, before the cancer has caused any symptoms, meaning that early screening can increase the likelihood of treatment being successful. Uh, regular smear tests in which cells are taken from the cervix and looked at under a microscope can detect the condition uh, while it is still precancerous. And joining us to talk about cervical cancer in more detail and to take your calls and questions, I'm delighted uh, to be joined on the line by Dr. T, Dr. Tlaleng Mofoking, physician, media personality and reproductive health advocate. Uh, And it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. Hello. Hello, good evening. How are you, Sir Jane? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for, for chatting to us this evening. It really is a great privilege to have you on the show. Before we even start talking about, about cervical cancer, what is the cervix? Where is the cervix? What part of the body are we, are we looking at here? <laughs> um, so the cervix is the part of the body that connects the vaginal canal um, with the lower part of the uterus. Um, a lot of the people refer to the uterus as the womb and the cervix as the mouth of the womb. Um, And that is where we're doing the sampling when we're doing pap smears, for example. It's just looking at the cervix because it hangs inside of the vaginal canal. Okay, so it's not the vagina, it's not the womb, it's the part that connects the two. Yes, so the cervix is the lower end of the actual womb. Okay, I get it. We're not going inside um, per se, we're just going in the vaginal canal and that's the external part, the protruding part of the um, uterus. Okay, got it. So then cancer of the cervix, what exactly is that and and how is it detected? So basically, I mean, we know with any cancer, um, it's the result of um, normal cells in the body that then mutate genetically to cause um, cancer cells and it's named by whichever part of the body is affecting. So in this case, we're talking about cervical cancer because it's affecting the cells in the cervix. And there are various of the human papilloma virus, um, which is a sexually transmitted infection that plays a role in causing cervical cancer. And we know that strains 16 and 18 of HPV are the ones that are, have been isolated to cause most of the cancers. And so when someone has been exposed to human papilloma virus, um, the immune system normally typically can prevent the virus from causing harm. Now, in some people with certain risk factors, um, the virus survives for many years in the cervical um, area and this then contributes to the process where then those cells um, then start to mutate and then cause cancer of the cervix. Hmm. Hmm. Why, why do you think or what, why is it that, that cervical cancer figures are so high in South Africa? What are we doing wrong here? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, just to speak about the risk factors, right? Hmm. Um, if, if you have an early sexual debut, for example, you know, sex at an early age, if you have a, a great um, a risk, uh, I mean, a, a number of um, increased sexual partners um, that gives it at a greater risk of acquiring HPV and therefore um, getting cancer. But if you have other STIs, which is very important for us in our context in South Africa, um, such as chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and HIV, these also increase your risk of getting HPV. And we know specifically with HIV, as it advances, especially for people who do not have a viral load that's suppressed, 
is that they are then more likely because of the weakened immune system to develop um, cervical cancer as part of the HIV diagnosis um, and, and earlier. And unfortunately, it's often more severe. And again, for us in South Africa, smoking is a big issue and it is also associated with squamous cell um, cancer. But also there is something, I mean, I mean, you know, just to comment on the availability, I mean, the literal access. Um, that in, people have um, to, to screening tests. Mm. Many people still don't know when to start screening for cervical cancer. And then, of course, those who have received um, the screening, often we find that in local communities, people don't really go back to get the results. Yeah. And therefore, those who then have abnormal results are lost to the system, and then people then only present with much advanced cancer um, when the actual symptoms of disease start coming. And by that stage, it is already advanced. Does family history have anything to do with uh, one's proclivity or, or risk factor when it comes to um, cervical cancer? No, not in, in cervical cancer. Um, because it's, it, the risk is specifically associated with human papilloma virus, which is a sexually transmitted infection. Okay. Um, and so that, that's the one thing that's important for us to remember when we're talking about um, you know, cervical cancer. And even those who have had a hysterectomy, can still uh, have a risk of developing, um, you know, cancer of the cervix because of the lining of the of the cervix and the vagina. Sometimes when you do the hysterectomy, there is a little bit of those cells that would be cervical cells that are left behind, and those cells can still be uh, susceptible to being to being cancerous. And therefore, you know, we always say people need to continue having their follow ups at least with their primary care doctors to assist properly what their risks are. And sometimes people do the screening just for the vaginal vault um, if they've had a if they've had a hysterectomy, which is something else um, that's common for South African women. Um, but I, I mean, the, 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 I think the main message with cervical cancer is that the screening is really, really low cost. It should be available for all women um, who are sexually active. And we should be encouraging people to screen early because treatment, um, you know, it can be cumbersome. But it doesn't have to be, and people don't have to die from this disease. Mm. And the fact that so many South African women are still dying from this, um, you know, is always a problem. And then maybe later on we can discuss about the vaccination and uh, prevention method. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. If you are just joining us, we're on the line with Dr. Tlaleng Mofoking, who is talking to us about cervical cancer or cervical cancer. Uh, if uh, you would like to uh, send in a question or would like to give us a call, uh, that would be great. 021-446-0567 is the number uh, to dial. You can send us an SMS to 31567 or a WhatsApp to 072-567-1567. And we were talking uh, about um, smear tests and pap smear tests. Hajida from Retreat says, my daughter is 18 and sexually active. Is she too young to go for a pap smear test? So she's not too young. I mean, you know, different countries have different guidelines, right? But what we always say um, is that, you know, if you if you are a person with a uterus who's aged between 18 and 25, you're already sexually active, um, you should have a pap smear every three or two years, right? Um, and depending on what your risk factors are, on that first consultation with your healthcare provider. They can then advise you whether you must make it two years, must make it three years. Sometimes um, the results come back, right? And perhaps there is some early changes that um, the, the lab technicians cannot say if it's really cancerous or it's just, uh, you know, uh, changes due to other hormonal factors like pregnancy, menopause and those things. They can then actually advise and recommend that you repeat your pap smear in six months. Sometimes it's in a year. 
um, you know, people who have HIV and are on ARVs, for example, um, sometimes, you know, the, 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 the smear um, isn't quite conclusive, um, you know, for the early precancerous cells, but there may be a question mark just in terms of, um, you know, what the, what the cells could be. And so the, the timeline can really differ from two, three years, even to six months. And it's so important that we remember that patients need to go back for results because there is so much more that needs to be discussed once we get those smear results back that can often um, change the timeline and the general advice that we give to people. Mm-hmm. Melanie sent in a message. Uh, Melanie from Musenberg, thanks for your message, love, says, uh, after a very painful experience when I was younger, I'm terrified of going to have a pap smear. I'm 35 mm-hmm. and haven't had one since I was in my early 20s. Ooh. Any advice, Dr. T? Yeah, it's very common. And I think, you know, a lot of uh, women are very shy um, to tell their doctors when they're uncomfortable during a procedure. Mm. Um, and I think, of, of course, you know, being in the in the vulval area, the vaginal area, you know, we already have so many stories of other women who've had bad experiences. Mm. So often by the time someone comes with pep smear, they're already nervous and quite shaky. So it's just always good to remember, I think also just generally for healthcare professionals. In fact, a lot of uh, much of the healthcare system in this country is run by nurses, and often we don't speak enough and don't don't give them enough support in terms of, um, you know, continued medical education. But it's so important to explain the procedure to patients. When people know what to expect, what's going to happen every step of the way, they are that much less anxious. And I think you know, talking to to the patients as you do this, the procedure also helps a lot um, because they know what's happening, they can anticipate, um, and they can give you feedback. So you're giving them that sort of okay to say you can tell me something is uncomfortable. No one really likes going to pep smears. In all the years that I've been doing pep smears, I've never met someone who likes doing it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also because the, the speculum tends to be a bit cold um, and that, that causes you know people to, 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 to be a bit uncomfortable. Uh, but it's not painful. It shouldn't be painful. Uh, but again, if you feel discomfort during any procedure, please let your medical uh, professional know who's helping you. Um, and there's ways that we can try and make you comfortable. So a pap smear should never be painful. That, that's right, isn't it? There's a difference between something being a bit uncomfortable and being painful. Yeah, there is a, a difference. And I mean, look, and the more you are relaxed, the better, because the pelvic floor muscles are very strong, okay? Um, those are the ones that we always refer to when people are doing the Kegel exercises. Yes, so I'm doing them right any... now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, for example, if the speculum is very cold, the patient is not expecting that the procedure is starting and you suddenly, you know, trying to insert the speculum, you know, the reflex naturally is to tense up and to tighten those muscles, mm. which means that the, the, you know, the pelvic area is literally just going to close up and then it's going to be even more difficult to try and get the speculum in. So it actually helps to have a patient who understands what's happening and is actually can then just cooperate and make the whole process um you know, it's just a little bit less, um, you know, awkward and uncomfortable. Um, but there should, there isn't pain like you would have if you, if you, um, you know, like taking blood samples with a needle. Mm, mm. Um, in fact, these days, what we are using when we're taking the sampling is a brush. Uh, back in the days, we used oh, to use a the brown spatula. Yeah. yeah. Now we don't scrape anymore. Uh, we use a cervical brush, and the tip of the brush is removable. Um, and now the 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 actual sampling uh, uh, collection kit. Um, has a liquid base in it. It's called liquid base cytology, and that gets transported into the lab. Um, and in fact, it's actually quite good because if you think about the people who are needing pep smears the most, some of them, especially in rural areas, are already having symptoms like abnormal uterine bleeding. Yeah. Even if we want to treat other gynecological problems, right, whether it's endometriosis, whether it's fibroids, polycystic ovarian syndrome, it doesn't matter what it is. 
a pap smear is probably always going to be done. And all of those symptoms um, and those diseases, the hallmark symptoms is abnormal in transiting. So we don't have to delay people anymore with the new technology of the liquid-based cytology, and therefore we don't delay diagnosis, which is very, very important in terms of the cancer risk. Yeah, um, that we discussing. Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Uh, Tembi's message in from Rondebosch East and says, um, "Doctor T, how often should women have checkups with their gynies?" Look, I think everyone should have a primary care doctor. And for women, a gynae, because you know, uh, I suppose because in our reproductive health, so much of our illnesses and conditions revolve around our reproductive health. The gynae ends up being that person. But even your family doctor, your general practitioner should be able to do your pap smear and do the very basic screening. And therefore, whether it's a gynae that you prefer to go to or your GP and your family doctor, do that every year. Generally, you can pick up other medical conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, other cancers like breast cancer. Um, Have your doctor assist you in terms of learning how to do a a self-breast exam. Some people may need um, to check their cholesterol. People may be on some maintenance. Um, you know, therapy for depression, for epilepsy, uh, for anxiety. So it's so important to have just a general checkup where you are not sick. And I'll tell you why. Often when we are sick, we focus on the symptom and the disease at the moment. You forget all these other minor stuff um, that's niggling and worrying you. If you go to your doctor at least once a year when you are not sick, you can discuss health and wellness. You can discuss prevention. You can discuss vaccination. People who travel and work away from home, we can discuss about what other vaccines that you need to be doing and how to travel better. Um, You have people who are in specific occupations, right, Um, that need some occupation-specific information. And those people can then use those times to have those discussions with the doctor. So I would say once a year, but just make sure that you have one person who can take care of your entire family, but also look at you holistically. I have to say, I'm always amazed when I speak to other women who say, oh, well, yes, and of course, I went to go and see my gynae the other day. And I think I've never had a specific doctor for specific <laughs> conditions in my life. And I, and I, honestly, mm. I've never had I've never had uh, a gynecologist that I say, well, mm. this is my gynae and I go to them. It's just not something that I've ever done. I don't know if that's because growing up in the UK, it just wasn't something unless you had private medical care, which most people don't mm. in the UK. Um, you just go to your local GP and he or she yeah. does everything. And that's so important um, because if you look at the majority of South Africans, couldn't afford private care. Of course. Um, right? And so we need to strengthen the primary health care, but specifically mm. the public health care. Um, and, and really, you know, I think in South Africa the, the, it, it's much more relaxed. In the, in the Previously, you couldn't just walk into a specialist room and make an appointment. Mm. You, you had to come with a referral from a a primary healthcare doctor or a nurse or a facility. Um, but more and more now, you find that patients are able to just see a specialist. And sometimes, you know, uh, we do have to go the extra mile just to help the patients uh, for their own good, I think. You know, if you can go to your GP for basic investigation, and once they've come up with a few different differentials, they can then discuss with you in terms of the best option. Often you save a lot of money um, that, um, you know, you don't have to pay uh, for a specialist to do the basics and then refer you to another specialist who refers you to another specialist. Um, sometimes it is worthwhile to actually just delay going to a specialist, see a primary healthcare physician at least once um, and get a more holistic view of what's happening um, and then just rule out a few of the of the conditions. And I mean, if you remember the, the symptoms um, for, for advanced, you know, cervical cancer include vaginal bleeding. 
you know, after intercourse right. or between periods or even, um, you know, vaginal bleeding after someone has had menopause. Um, and, and then a watery, bloody discharge that can be present. It can be heavy, it could be light, um, it could have a foul odor, but also pelvic pain. Uh, pain is a big, big thing. So women shouldn't ignore, um, you know, pelvic pain, even if it's during sex. Um, you should still, uh, you know, get that checked out and understand your own personal risk. It's not enough um, to just be sharing information with friends. You need to understand what your personal uh, risk is, taking into context um, all the other lifestyle, um, you know, issues that we spoke about. Is it right that with with the precancerous um, lesions, I guess one would call them, in the cervix, that mm-hmm. they don't usually have symptoms? And I guess that's why it's so important to have pap smear tests, right? Yes, it is important. Early on, um, remember the, 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 the time the, the cells it takes to mutate is a few years. Right. So you're not going to get human papilloma virus today or next week and then at the end of the year have, you know, the, the, have it mutated. Yeah. So it does take a while. So the pap smear is screening in that phase, the pre-cancer phase where you don't have symptoms as yet. Yeah. By the time you have symptoms, most of the time, the disease has already advanced to sure. some degree. Um, and, I mean, one of the ways, of course, um, you know, with the blood test and all of those things that are available is that one can do a, an, an HPV DNA test, um, you know, that can tell you the type of HPV if you have the infection, right? And then you will know, you know, if you, if you are even at, you know, at risk of having the precancerous um, changes. But I think for us in South Africa, with, with our setting, with everything we know, um, and have discussed in terms of socioeconomic, in terms of the health mm, system itself, mm. the PEP test still remains the gold standard for screening for cervical cancer. Um, and I mean, we, we, you know, depending also on, 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 on the staging and what needs to happen, should you have a diagnosis of cancer? You know, the treatment is very, it's very different from just having a, 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 you know, a cone biopsy or having a, a, a you know, a, a, a tissue sample being removed um, sometimes it's so advanced that unfortunately we have to have a hysterectomy. Uh, but the, the treatment really does depend on what stage it is. You know, surgery is not something that is just done um, as a first line, um, but it can be, uh, you know, uh, considered um, where, where, where it's necessary. Um, and unfortunately in South Africa, again, you know, once people have received treatment like radiation, um, like chemotherapy, the, the follow-up care isn't always as it should be, especially in the public sector. And I don't think we speak enough about the impact of cancer treatment um, post, post um, you know, uh, the, the completion with patients. Just in terms of quality of care. 100%. And I think there's still so much more that we could do. Or even post-diagnosis. Um, the, the focus mm. so often seems to be on, on the diagnosis, but not a great mm. deal of conversation happens thereafter, um, I think, mm. particularly if you're talking about public health care also. Mm. And the delays in treatment, I think for me that's the worst thing. You know, it's one thing to have a diagnosis and, and understand how bad the situation is, right? And then it's a different story when you then have to be told that you're on your waiting list for six months. For treatment, um, and that's very, very sad. And I mean, if you think about the the, the staging of it, right? Um, it depends about um, if if it has metastasized to other organs, and how will we know, right? So you need access to things like CT scan, you need access to bone marrow, um, uh, um, bone mass density uh, X-rays, um, you need to be able to do liver biopsies, and all of those other things when they are indicated. And for people who are in rural areas or in hospitals where they are not having specialist care. 
how will they get all of these stagings done? And so even the delay to start treatment while you work up a patient to decide what's the best method, that on its own can take so long. Um, and, and we do lose a lot of people um, in that phase of waiting, of waiting and waiting and waiting for treatment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are uh, joined this evening. I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Dr. Tlaleng Mofokeng, who is talking to us about uh, cervical cancer, uh, the risks, the symptoms, the causes, the treatments. Um, and we welcome your calls and questions uh, and comments. 021-446-0567. You can drop us an SMS to 31567 or do as Marlene has done, uh, which is to send us a WhatsApp to 072-567-1567. Uh, and Marlene says, I had a full hysterectomy when I was 30. I'm now 70. How often should I have a pap smear? Yeah, I think uh, it's an earlier comment that I made that depending on your risk, um, some doctors can still continue doing an a, a intravaginal vault sampling. Uh, but I think at age 70, um, you know, when you do for your annual checkups, continue having the, the, the discussions with your doctor and they should give you the best guide um, in terms of when you should stop. But I think around Age 70, that's when we usually say, you know, that that's when you should continue really doing pap smears. Um, and, and you actually should start about two years after your first sexual activity. So uh, 70, it's, you know, in the public sector, she will probably tell her that she doesn't have to have them anymore. Yeah, yeah. We've had another message in that says, if you've not been sexually active for 10 years, do you still need to have a pap smear? Yes, you do. You do. And this is important for those people who, for example, um, in, 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 this case, in the listener's case, they haven't had sexual activity for 10 years, but you perhaps want to know what your risk profile is like, right? Yeah. And that's when then maybe you can do the, the HPV um, blood test to see what type of HPV you have. And therefore, then you will know if you are more at risk of the cancerous um, changes or not. But again, um, because by default, the cervical cancer is a slow-progressing disease, you still need pap smear screening to be actually be sure. It may not be every year for you, maybe maybe every three years, uh, but you still need to continue doing that screening for sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to another message. Uh, Justine is um, has sent us in a message that says, does the number of sexual partners that someone has had increase their risk of cervical cancer? It does. Um, and only because cervical cancer is caused by HPV, which is sexually transmitted. Mm, That's mm. a really only link. It's because human papilloma virus is actually one of the most common um, sexually transmitted infections in the world. And anyone who's had any unprotected sex, even if it's once, um, you can probably consider yourself having HPV. Um, and that's why that's important. And of course, it's just a, a matter of numbers, right? The more you are exposed to a potential situation, the higher the chances that it may affect you. And that's the point. Um, but it's really speaking about human papilloma virus itself being transmitted because you have, um, you know, different exposure to different strains. Because there's more than just two strains of HPV. Some of it causes genital warts, um, you know. And one thing that I must just remember to actually say is that sometimes when you have patients who are engaging in anal sex, you may have to do a swab also of the, genit- uh, of the anal area okay. uh, because we find that a lot of patients are also then presenting with anal cancer from HPV um, and no one is, is asking patients in terms of the type of sex they're having. You know, het- um, uh, uh, hetero- heterosexuality is assumed, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when a woman comes in, we're assuming that she's having a specific type of sex and when a man comes, we assume, you know. Um, and so it's important then when you are, you know, especially for health providers, I suppose, 
that sexual history is very important to understand what types of sex people are having. Mm. Um, and then you can, you can then do the necessary you know, um, advice and screening. Absolutely. That's so true. That's so true. Um, so we were talking then about the risk factors. Are there things that women can do to, re- to decrease uh, their risk of, of getting cervical cancer? You mentioned about smoking, of course, being a risk factor. So yeah. presumably by quitting smoking, uh, you are reducing your risk somewhat. What are some of the other things perhaps? Yeah. Um, I mean, does it matter? Uh, t- talking about weight and diet, does, does all that play a part? Look, not, not for the no, not weight and diet, but it is important to stop smoking. Firstly, um, people who are on long-term oral contraceptives need to obviously mm. see their doctor and, and understand and see, um, you know, what's happening. I think it's also important, um, you know, just to remember generally um, to keep a healthy lifestyle. And remember, the only co- the HIV is not the only cause of immunocompromised state. Right. So if you have people who are diabetic and have long term uncontrolled diabetes, at some point, their own immune system will not be able to mount a good enough response to infection. So we need to think wider and I suppose not stigmatize tobacco cancer so much, um, you know, in terms of HIV uh, immunocompromised because there are other, there are other uh, causes. But in terms of risk factors, lead a healthy lifestyle, um, delay your first sexual debut, Use a condom properly every single time you have sex. Um, and recently, the female condom has now been approved by the FDA. We're actually starting to refer to it as the internal condom because now we know it can be used for anal sex as well. So people should be, uh, we should be advocating, I think, for more access to this type of condom um, in public spaces for as sure. well. For sure. Uh, we've had a message in that says, I have very heavy periods and often bleed in between my period. I've also been experiencing some very bad lower back pain. Could that be a sign of cervical cancer? Cancer does run in my family. That's from Anonymous. Okay. So Anonymous, the best thing to do is to see your doctor. I think on the radio we can't, you know, say people's probabilities of mm. cancer or not of based on, on, on what they've written in. But firstly, remember cervical cancer is not hereditary. Um, it does depend on you being infected with the human papilloma virus. And um, the symptoms that you have spoken about could be for so many other gynecological uh, reasons. A lot of gynae problems present with back pain, abnormal bleeding, intermittent bleeding, painful sex. So this is why it's important to actually don't delay seeing a doctor. Rather, get reassured properly after an examination and other screening tests that may be necessary. Um, that's my advice. Don't delay taking care. There we go. Good, great advice there. Thanks ever so much for that. And uh, let's talk about the the vaccine. The and now this is the HPV vaccine, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so this is is this now being being administered in that that was supposed to be administered in schools um, from about four or five years ago. Is that is that happening? Um, look, I've I've had requests from people to find to find out which schools, and it's very difficult to get a database in terms of which schools. Um, it is mostly public schools. I know that private schools sometimes have a clinic at the school and that, you know, uh, uh, that, that can be arranged, you know, uh, with the parents' consent and all sure. of that. But I know in the public sector, it's very difficult to find out which schools it was. I haven't seen any public health announcements or yeah. any campaigns in recent months on the HPV vaccine rollout. But I do know that um, it was targeted at young girls. Uh, but it's important for me to just tell the parents that it is recommended for preteens, both boys and girls. So if you are a parent um, who can afford it, you can acquire it for your boys and girl children. 
um, usually from the ages of 11 to 12, um, but it can be given as early as nine and as late as 26 years of age. And it is a series um, of, of, inve- of, um, of, of injections that you get. It can be two or three, depending on which branding is used. But it's very important, um, you know, especially when adults who are still not sexually active, who are interested in having this vaccine, um, just to contact their doctor and see if they fit the profile, um, you know, for someone who can still benefit from it. But it, it's, it's groundbreaking. It's very good um, if we can do one thing um, in terms of prevention um, of this, um, you know, in adulthood, especially of, 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 of black women in South Africa. I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good step. Um, but it's both boys and girls um, from the age of 11. And people shouldn't be scared of getting this vaccine. No, they shouldn't be scared of getting vaccines. The whole thing about, you know, the vaccines, you know, the research has proven over and over over again about the safety, not just of the HPV vaccine, but vaccinations in general. Um, and, you know, if you look at the effects of not vaccinating, it doesn't make sense why we shouldn't be doing it. Um, and prevention is still best. And I think if anyone can do anything to prevent such, you know, uh, you know diseases like cancer, we should really be supporting um, those initiatives uh, much more. And, and, and it's really, really, uh, you know, the risks associated with it are, are, are not any more than other, other, other vaccines. And I think just after you've had it, obviously on the site where the vaccine was, it may be uncomfortable, it may be painful, there might be some redness, um, you know, some pain over the days, but it shouldn't really, um, you know, cause major, major issues. We've had another message in from uh, from Rosemary who says, Hi, SJ, I had a cone biopsy after abnormal cells were found on a pap smear when I was in my 30s. Would that mean that it was cervical cancer? I've never had a problem since then, and I'm now in my 70s. Yeah, so it means that the, the, the screening at the time was probably showing abnormal pre-cancerous cells. And what the, the, the method of treatment for that, again, depends on what they find, right? And in this in this instance, um, it may have been that um, when they did the cone biopsy, they've taken maybe an, a few edges, like a centimeter or so, of normal cells, so that even if there's any precancerous cells close to where the abnormal ones are growing, they can take that away also in the biopsy. And that in itself is a diagnostic, but it's a therapeutic treatment as well. And you, she should still um, have pap smear cells. Done. Um, sorry, because just because you had a cone biopsy a few years ago doesn't mean the infection that's there, um, you know, will, will not progress. Remember, mm. a virus doesn't have a cure. So yeah. once you're infected with human papilloma virus, you have the infection for life, and you, the, those cells can still mutate even after you've had a cone biopsy. Um, but we don't do cone biopsy, um, you know, for for cancer per se. We're doing it when the when the cells have shown pre-cancer and the risk of leaving it far outweighs um, removing of those abnormal cells. And therefore they go onto the cervix and they remove um, those abnormal cells. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk briefly in the next couple of minutes that we've got left about treatments for, for cervical cancer. Does it always involve surgery? It doesn't always have to involve surgery. And um, I know with, you know, with medical technology, a lot of the surgery, um, you know, uh, there's the recovery is still better than back in the olden days. But surgery doesn't have to be involved, but it can be. Um, often people will be referred either to a, a gynecologist, a general surgeon, depending if there's other um, you know, metastases. Um, they may be referred to a physician if they need to be optimized for, for theater, if they have other medical conditions, a, a, a radiation um, 
uh, doctor may be, may be referred to uh, a chemo radiation and as well. So there's so many, it's like a multi, multi, um, disciplinary team that takes care of a person and based on certain risk factors, if the disease has progressed, then different treatment options will then be decided. Um, but it is a multi, uh, you know, disciplinary team. It should be. Um, not always the case in the public sector, but it should be um, that, you know, people who with cancer are cared for by more than one practitioner. And what checkups would a woman then need to have after having had treatment for cervical cancer? And how so regularly? They, yeah, so there's the immediate post-op, you know, recovery, which is common for, for, for you know, all surgery, I suppose. Um, and unfortunately, depending on, on, you know, how far the staging is, for example, if it's a, uh, you know, a stage four, um, and someone is really ill and everything has failed, then palliative care uh, may be something that's required. And again, unfortunately, in the state sector, it's not really a well-developed um, speciality and people don't really have access. And even if we have a few practitioners, uh, a lot of them end up being in, in, in private care. So that's one option. And again, we don't discuss enough. The other thing, of course, is depending on how long radiation or chemo needs to go on for, um, you may carry on after surgery, for example. Um, to then attain radiation and chemo, you know, those cycles, mm. depending. Um, and I think, you know, again, how often you have a pet smear, you will then hear from your doctor. If you have HIV, for example, your timeline may be shorter than someone who doesn't. For sure. um, it will really depend on, on that, yeah. Okay, great stuff. Listen, we're going to have to end it there, Dr. T, but you've been an absolute star. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who sent in uh, messages and questions. We really do appreciate you joining us for this really important conversation. Dr. T, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Goodbye.